Well, in this series, Unstoppable, going through all the chapters of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 15. If you have a Bible and brought one with you, uh, if you could find Acts chapter 15, go to the middle of your Bible, take a right, about halfway through what's left, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you had a smart device, it's easier to find it there, certainly, uh, but just follow along. I'm going to put references on the screen, but not the whole text. I want you to get in the habit of following along in your Bibles. Uh, Acts chapter 15 is a pivotal chapter in the Christian church and in understanding what comprises the Christian life. Up to this point in the history of the church, it's largely been centered in the Jewish community because Jesus was a Jew. The Messiah was a Jewish concept. God was going to work through his people, the Jews, in bringing the Messiah, the Savior, to earth. That happened through Jesus. And it took root amongst his, his 12 followers were, 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 were Jews and followed him as their rabbi. And so as Christianity spread, it spread within the Jewish community first. We started seeing in the book of Acts a few what's called Gentiles, that means non-Jews, come to faith. But as of late in these last few chapters, we see the spread of the, of the gospel, the knowledge of Jesus spread into these Gentile communities through the work of, of a man named Saul, who will become Paul, name change, and Barnabas. And so what's happening now is this, the church, comprised mainly of Jews, are now having to wrestle with the issue, who do we let in to our faith? And they're wrestling with this struggle. All these people who have been who are non-Jews, they don't understand what we do, why we do it, our history. They don't understand the religious rules we've been living by. But now it seems they're coming to believe in this Jesus like we've understood him now as the Messiah. How much of their life needs to change to be like us, because it's a Jewish Messiah, for them to be led into our group, Right? Every one of us knows what this is like. If you've ever tried to break into a close-knit group, you know. you got to jump through some hoops before they let you in, right? I vividly remember moving to the ranchos. Now, my wife and I grew up in Visalia, so we're not that far off. But we moved down to Southern California. Everybody said, boo. For seven years in Orange County, we come back, we move to the ranchos. This was back in 2004, so nearly 20 years ago. And it was crystal clear to me that we didn't fit. Matter of fact, there was a line of demarcation that was Avenue 15. And north of there was the Chihuahua people, and south of there was the Ranchos people. And it was very crystal clear to me that we were the outsiders. We hadn't put in enough time yet. You understand? Any of you who have moved to this little community understand this. Anybody who's moved into Riverstone understands this. I don't know where the Rolling Hills people fit yet. It's just like this is, this is just, this is what happens when you get groups of people living together, shared experiences. When an outsider comes in, you want to know. What do I have to do to meet your qualifications, jump through the hoop so you'll, you'll accept me, right? Right? Yeah, that's just it's part of human nature. 
And so this is what the church is dealing with. And in Acts 15, they answer the question. Acts 15 is crucial. And what happens in Acts 15 will set the course of the Apostle Paul's ministry. It will determine the fleshing out of his theology and doctrine, and it will inform everything we believe about what it is about the Christian faith and how we, how we make it, how we get in. Acts 15 answers the question that every world religion asks. What's it take to be let in? What's it take to make it? What's it take to, quote, unquote, be saved? And so, again, I'm just putting the references up here. You can look them up. I'll read them. Verses 1 and 2 of Acts 15, it says this. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So this was a question. What's it take to be let in? What do I have to do? And so what we see here is, 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 is these Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah are saying, believe and do. And unless you do, you don't get in. See, anytime we talk about salvation and include an unless... It stops being biblical. Faith plus anything is not biblical. So anytime we talk about salvation and there's an unless, believe, but also unless you, it invalidates it. So here's, here's how I want you to understand it. Unless invalidates relationship. Unless invalidates the relationship. And we all know how this works. We, we have relationships like this. Look, I will love you unless you. I'll be faithful to you unless you. I got your back unless you. We're really good unless. We're tight unless. Right? You understand? We, we know how this works. We're really good friends unless. The moment you put an unless there, it invalidates the relationship. And so to say, believe, but unless you also, it invalidates the relationship. And this is what they were saying. Paul will go on and flesh this out. Like this issue that's addressed in Acts 15 colors everything that Paul will do from here on out in the rest of his life and all of his ministry and all his writing. Galatians, which Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the what? In the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So the moment we turn from grace to unless, we've adopted a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, which is by God's grace, end of discussion. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Wow. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. The gospel they have accepted is the gospel of salvation by God's grace through faith in what Jesus did, done. Anything that's added to that, Paul says, should be under the curse of God because it's a perversion of the good news. Religion is a set of rules that people try to live by. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Religion is a set of rules that people try to live by to be right with God. It's spelled do. I have to do certain things to be right with God. Every world religion is based on that premise. Now, please hear me. I'm not picking on anyone. I'm just speaking truth about each one. Islam. They have five pillars of faith. The first one is to believe in Allah and his prophet Muhammad. And then they have four others. A pilgrimage to Mecca, a giving of two-fifths of your income, like all this stuff. And you have to you have to buy by all five to be right with Allah. It's not just believe, it's believe and do. And Paul says, anytime it's believe and do, it is it's a under the curse of God. Mormonism. Mormonism teaches you believe and then you get married in the temple and all these other tenets that have to go along with it. So it's believe, but unless you also, do you understand? I'm not picking, I'm just saying this is what they believe. This is what the tenets of that faith teach. And according to Paul, belief and is under God's curse. I'm not making this up, I'm just reading the Bible. Catholicism. Believe, go through catechism, take Holy Communion, be baptized as an infant, and all this other. They have seven things you have to do other than just believe. Problem is most people don't even know that. And then the Bible says anytime you take belief, and unless you also, it's a perversion of the gospel. This is how simple the good news is. And what's at stake in Acts 15? It, what does it take to be saved? Christianity is more than mere religion. Christianity is a relationship with the Father through the work of Jesus. It has already been done. There is no unless you also in the Christian faith. And it's the only world religion that believes this, that teaches this, that is based on this. Because it's the only world religion that's based on solely the work of Christ on the cross. Every other religion is a perversion of that simplicity. Because every other religion adds the unless you also. And this is what was going on in Acts 15. This single issue, what does it take to be saved? And the revelation of it will transform Paul's life 
and his teaching and his theology and everyone that comes to faith after that. Because it's about the grace of God, not our performance or duty. And it is this grace of God that the Bible calls the mystery of the gospel, the mysterion. The mystery of God, the mystery of the gospel is this very simple fact. By God's grace through faith alone. End of discussion. It's going to cause some problems for some people. It's going to cause some real problems for some people. Caleb, my middle son, told me this story when he was playing football in South Dakota. He's sitting at the team dinner and uh, sitting across from two linemen. One of the guys was a Mormon kid, and one of them was a just um, you know, really good heathen kid. And, uh, and the, 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 he's a really good lineman, though. I mean, it takes those types sometimes. Uh, but uh, this one kid who, who didn't believe anything asked the Mormon kid. He says, hey, so you guys both, like, have faith. Mormon kid, what, uh, what's it take to make it in Mormonism? And this Mormon kid, very dutiful, said, you, you believe, and then you, you know, married in the temple and the baptism and all this other stuff. All these rules he lists. And this, the guy says, well, that sounds pretty complicated. Caleb, what do you believe? He said, well, we believe what the Bible says. You just believe in faith and you're good. And this kid, he said, well, I don't know, but if I had to choose one, I think I'd choose Caleb's because that sounds pretty simple. Because it is. See, for people who are not religious, they have an easier time understanding the simplicity of it. The, you know, the ones who have difficulty with the simplicity of it are the religious people. Because religious people like to say this. Religious people like to say, I have jumped through these hoops, and I have done a lot of work, and I put my time in, so you need to put your time in. You don't get a free pass. And what religious people usually do is the thing they add to faith is whatever they've been successful at because it makes them feel superior. You understand what I'm saying? And so these Jews are coming in saying, look, these Gentiles want in? <laughs> you got to jump through some hoops. So this issue, verse 2, this issue caused great debate and dispute. Here's what I want you to know. There are some things worthy of a fight. There are some things worthy of a fight. There's not much that's worthy of a fight, but there are some things that are. It's just not usually the things we choose to fight over. We usually choose to fight over things that aren't worth a fight. But there are some things that are. And the things that are worth a fight is the clarity on what it takes to be saved. That's worth a fight. The problem is, we don't usually fight about that because most disciples don't know enough about theology and Bible to fight over it. What usually happens is disciples usually fight more about personal stuff and politics and personal offense, which is not worth fighting about. You understand? You tracking with me so far? This makes sense, doesn't it? Sure it does. So I'm not going to read all this, but if you, just, if you were to read verses 3 and 4, Paul and Barnabas are sent to the church up in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem was like Christianity headquarters. This is where the whole thing started. 
So the, all the apostles are there. And so the, the church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas and some others up to, to the church Christianity headquarters to settle the issue theologically. And as they travel up to Jerusalem, they start telling all the people in their travels about Jesus, because that's what they do. They just talk about Jesus and all that he's done amongst the Gentiles and non-Jews and, 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 and including them into the family of God and giving them the Holy Spirit. And it makes everybody happy who hears about it, except for the religious people who put in their due diligence. It doesn't make them happy at all. And so in verse 5, uh, we read, that some of, the, some of the believers who belonged to the part of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Again, it's the religious people that don't like the simplicity of the gospel. And they say, no, 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 all these Gentiles who want in, they haven't jumped through our hoops. They haven't done their due time. They haven't put any sweat equity into this like we have. So they got to get circumcised. They want to they be part of, the, part of God's group. They got to become Jewish. And for a man to become Jewish, they got to get circumcised and then obey all this law. And so if you read 7, 8, 9, 10, you'll see that, that, that Peter, Peter starts to, he, he combats this. Uh, and and he's, Peter got up and he dressed him. He said, look, some time ago, God made his choice among you that Gentiles might hear from, uh, from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Like, like God chose the, the Gentiles to come into this thing too. It's not, it's not about us Jews. And they don't have to become us to be accepted by God. They're not going to jump through a bunch of hoops. And, and Peter says God knows their heart. And because he knows their heart, he knows that they have faith in Christ. And look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this. I don't want you to miss verse 8. Verse 8 says this. God, who knows the heart, show that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. And so he says, he says God has accepted them and has imparted his spirit to them. That, that's a true sign that, he, that, God, that they are God, that they're part of the family. He's given them the spirit. Why? Because he knows their heart. And, and, and Paul, will, he'll, he'll flesh this out. He'll flesh this out in, in, in Romans 10. This is what he says. He says, if you declare with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be what? You'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, just as if I'd never sinned before God. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It has nothing to do with your behavior has nothing to do with the hoops you jump through. doesn't have anything to do with the religious rules that you obey. Paul says, back in Acts 15, fleshes it out in Romans 10, it's by faith you're saved because of God's grace. That is it. And God knows the heart. That's what he's saying here in verse 8. He knows the heart and he's accepted them. Because that relationship exists, first of all, in the heart. And I love, he goes on in verse 10, and, and uh, he, says, he says, now then listen, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither uh, our fathers or us have been able to bear? He said, why, why are you trying to lay all this heavy stuff on these people? He said, all these rules you want them to, all these hoops you want them to jump through, all these rules you want them to make, you can't even obey them. 
You couldn't do it. Your daddy couldn't do it. Your granddaddy couldn't do it. And your great-great-granddaddy couldn't do it. So why would you ask them to try? It's ridiculous. And every religious person knows that they can't even obey their own rules for their living, let alone God's rules. There's got to be a different way other than my obedience, other than my behavior. We can't even abide by our own standards for our life, let alone God's perfect standard, right? So there's got to be a different way. And he says, why would you lay all this on these people who are trying to come to faith? Just let them believe in their heart. That's all God requires. That's good enough. Verse 11 is huge. It's huge. It's my best impression I got of the man. I'm sorry. Listen, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. It, it can't get any more clear than that. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. It's so interesting to me that, that, that he flips the script here. He's saying, we are saved just like they are. Who are the we? Jews. He's saying, we Jews are saved just like the Gentiles. This sent them in like a tizzy. Because remember, this is a Jewish Messiah. This is a Jewish religion that is, 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 is being birthed out of. And usually what, they're, what these religious people are saying is that those who are not Jews have to become like Jews. And what is being said here is, no, 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 we have to become like them. We thought we were saved by being all this obedience to all these rules. They're saved simply by faith. We were saved just like they are, by faith. Because of God's grace through faith, that's it. And again, Paul fleshes this out in all of his writings. You go, you go, you go to Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. That, again, that means just as if I'd never sinned. We're justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Has nothing to do with what we do. He'll flesh it out further in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by what? Grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Where is, where is the duty in that? Where are the rules? Where are the hoops? And it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Here's what God did. God takes away our ability to self-affect our own salvation. He says, you're saved because of God's grace through faith, and that doesn't come from you. It's the gift of God. Notice what he does. He says, you're saved because of God's grace through faith, and the faith that you have to believe doesn't even come from you. The faith you have to believe is even a gift from God. So you can't even claim that you have faith. The faith you have is a gift from God. You don't, you don't create it. He's taking us out of the equation for our salvation. Do you understand that? He's removing the volition of the person to affect their own salvation, saying, no, it's not about you. You don't even come up with the faith to believe. The faith you have to believe is a gift from me. And I'm giving you the gift of faith so that you will believe that I am the only way. See, what this does is it puts us out of the foot of the cross. where there is no other way of salvation than through the cross. And when I am at the foot of the cross and I'm realizing the love of the Father that would ask that of his son, 
and ask nothing of me but to believe in faith. When I'm in that place at the foot of the cross, the good news of the gospel is both beautiful, simplistic, and powerful. When I know that I can do nothing to affect my own salvation, that it is gifted to me, and all I have to do is receive it. (laughs) When I'm in that place, I am overwhelmed that God would love me that much to remove every barrier for me to be made right with him. That is a beautiful place to be. It's a powerful place to be. It's a comforting place to be. It's a purposeful place to be. That is the place to be. And when I'm in that place, the only thing I want to do is respond in a life of righteousness. Not because I have to. Not because there's duty involved. Not because I must. Not because I'm commanded but because I realize the love and the beauty of the gospel by faith alone. There is nobody in my life, nor in yours, that loves you like that. Every one of us has an unless attached to our love. God does not. And this is what he invites us into. And this is the issue that's being settled here. I'll let you read verses 13 through 19 on your own. But basically, James stands up. He hears hears what's been said. He hears the testimony uh, of, of, of Paul and Barnabas. He hears the testimony of Peter. And James stands up in 13 through 19. And he gives the judgment of the apostles and, and the church on, on, the re, on, on what it means to be saved. And the interesting thing to me, this is just a side note. James is the unquestioned leader of the first church in Jerusalem. Who is James? It's not the, it's not the apostle James. He's been martyred already. This, this James is, is the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. And, and, I mean, he's a younger brother. They're not going to, you know, he's just, he's, just a, he's a punk, you know, before the resurrection. After the resurrection, he's like, wow, <laughs> my big brother is Jesus, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he becomes the leader of the first church. And it was just, just as a side note, he's the one who will write the epistle of James. He's the leader of the first church. And this just flies in, in, in biblical contradiction to the understanding of the Catholic church that Peter was the first pope. That's what they believe. Well, Peter was following the direction of James. James is the leader of the church, not Peter, in Jerusalem at this time. And I just every time I look at the Bible, I'm like, I am more and more and more convinced in the validity of, of Scripture and of Christ and of Christianity. Verse 19, look what it says. He says, in my judgment, therefore, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He said, look, y'all are making it too hard on these fellows to come to Jesus. Asking them to be circumcised and do all this stuff. He said, in my opinion, don't make it hard. It's real simple. Here's the truth. God doesn't want it to be hard for any of us to come to him. He's made it real simple. 
So simple, it's difficult to understand oftentimes. But it's through faith alone. And so in response, verse 20, just, just follow along with me. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, uh, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So understand, look, you're saved by faith alone, right? But here's these three things we want you to, to live by. So which is it? Am I saved by faith alone or do I have to do certain things? So if you don't understand what he's saying, you get a little bit confused here. But let, let me unpack this for you. He's saying it's by faith alone. Don't make it hard. It's by faith alone. Instead, abstain from food polluted by idols. Abstain from sexual immorality and the meat strangled from animals and from blood. What he's saying is this. You are saved by faith. But now that you're saved by faith, you need to live righteously. Not so you'll be saved, but because you are. And the three things that he said were important for them at that time, one was to keep yourself from idols. Now, an idol is anything that has priority over God or anything you turn to for help other than God. So anything that has a priority over God in your life or that you turn to for help other than God is an idol. And so what they're saying is don't, like, like, keep yourself from idols. Jeremiah, the prophet, has said previously, idols will do a couple things. One, in Jeremiah chapter 2, it says they will deform, you will become as worthless as the idol you worship. Some people worship the idol of money, and their pursuit of finances takes precedent over their honoring of God, and they become as worthless as the money they chase. It's an idol. Jeremiah, I think, 10 goes on and says, it will deform you, it will devalue you, and it will, uh, it will uh, distort you. So stay away from all those things that you put anything above God in priority or look to anything for help before God. It's an idol. Stay away from that. That's just good, right living. It doesn't make you saved, but it helps you work out your salvation. Does that make sense? That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is stay away from sexual immorality. Well, that makes sense no matter what culture you're in. Especially in their culture, in the Anarch, in, in Anarch, that area, it was incredibly, incredibly um, vulgar and sexual. We think our culture is, theirs was, whoo. Uh, and, and so it's like, look, that's going to ruin your testimony. You got people that you're trying to, 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 to win to Jesus, you get involved in that stuff, it's going to deform, it's going to ruin you, it'll ruin your testimony, it'll ruin your life, so just stay away. Like, you don't need to stay away with that so that you're saved because you are saved. You, you understand? And then the other thing he says, he says, I want you to be sensitive to those that you're trying to reach. What, the way he says that is stay away from strangled animals and from blood. So in the pagan temples, they would do animal sacrifices. Uh, but, but in the Jewish law, what they understood how to, how to sacrifice animals in the Old Testament system, is they would take one single knife with one single cut across the throat. It would kill the animal immediately so it wouldn't suffer. Then it would drain all the blood out. Because the Old Testament law was don't eat anything with blood still in it. So in obedience to the Old Testament law for the Jews, they had to drain all the blood uh, out of the meat before they could eat it. Well, in these pagan temples, they didn't have that law. This was a Jewish law. It wasn't a Gentile law. God gave it to the Jews, not the Gentiles. So they would, in their animal sacrifice, they would kill the animal however they chose to do it, but they wouldn't drain it of the blood. And then those animals that were sacrificed, they would take to the meat market and sell. 
And so these Jews were like, whoa, hey, we can't eat that meat because, it, you know, they're cooking it and it's medium rare. We can't eat medium rare steak. You understand what I'm saying? And so, so what, what, what the church is saying is, like, just be sensitive. If these Jews are trying to come to Jesus, don't eat meat with the, don't eat, don't have a medium rare steak. It's going to be too tough for them to get past their culture so they can accept the liberation that's in Christ. So don't make them stumble over it. Just lay down your right. It's interesting in the New Testament, there are no more dietary laws obeyed in the New Testament. It's crazy. And so people come to faith in the New Testament, they had no dietary laws. They didn't have to abide by it. It doesn't appear to so. And so it's like, though you have the freedom, lay down your freedom and your rights for the sake of those who don't know Jesus yet because it'll be stumbling for them. Does that make sense? Now, now, it looks different in our world, but I guarantee you that there are people in your huddle in your 8 to 15 who don't know Jesus who are, God is calling them and he's put you in their life to, to help them get to Jesus. And there may be things that you have free license to do in faith that would be a stumbling block for them. And the teaching of Scripture for us, as it was for the first church, don't put anything in their path that's going to make them stumble over that. Make it easy for them. And so the role of the disciple is to sacrifice our rights and sacrifice our liberty for the sake of someone else coming to Jesus. When they come to Jesus, hopefully they'll mature and realize that, hey, I can have a BLT sandwich. It's fantastic. Why did I, you know? But before they have that maturity, just deny yourself. That's what he's saying. Does it make sense? So it's not because you, in order to be saved, do these things. It's because you are saved. Now live with wisdom and sensitivity. And this is what that looks like. Does that make sense? And I love this, this last passage, verses 30 and 31. Look at this. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together to deliver. So, so the, the church writes this letter in Jerusalem, sends it back with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, says, okay, here's, here, here, here's our teaching on this. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Believe because of God's grace by faith, you're good but live wisely now, okay? So he gives them that letter. Verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Why were they glad for its encouraging message? <laughs> it should read, and the men were exceedingly glad for its message because the issue for them in their culture was circumcision. And so, and so what, what, what these Jewish Christians were saying to these Gentiles, you can come in, but you got to get circumcised. This is an issue. And so they were exceedingly glad that coming to Jesus didn't mean at their advanced age they had to go back and get circumcised. That's what this is saying. So I am so thankful that God made it abundantly clear what is and is not part of salvation. Otherwise, we'd be singing songs like this. Rather than amazing grace, how sweet the sound, we'd be singing songs like amazing circumcision, how painful the sound. You know what I'm saying? Other than the old hymn, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We'd be singing songs like what can take away my sin? 
nothing but a knife to the privates. It just doesn't work. So what they did is realize what God has been speaking from the beginning of time, that it has nothing to do with your own affecting your own salvation. Jesus has done it. It is done. Now he offers us the free gift of salvation for those who would believe. It is simple, it's easy, and then it's costly. Because it demands from us a response appropriate to our appreciation for the simplicity that is ours now because of the cross of Christ. We're going to take a break from this point in our study of Acts. And we're going to start this four-part series looking at the gifts of Christmas. And can I just tell you that the thing we have most to be thankful for and the greatest gift imparted to humanity is this gift of salvation. That it has been completely affected through Christ on the cross and freely offered to us. It's the, be- it's the thing we have most to be thankful for and the greatest gift given to humanity. And we're going to look at that in these next four weeks, looking from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. And we will see this theme over and over and over that Christ has affected every work that needs to be performed for your salvation. Why don't you just accept him? I want to invite you to the liberation that is yours by grace and invite you to the motivation that becomes yours to live righteously, not so that you'll be saved, but in appreciation for all that has been done for you through Christ on his cross. I want you to pray with me. Do not tune out right now just because it's time to pray. Listen to me. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you've tried to work and be good so God will be pleased, if you thought that your behavior and your righteousness made you more right with God, I want to invite you to the liberation of salvation by His grace, through faith alone. But I also want to invite you, who are already His, to come back to the simplicity of the cross, the simplicity of salvation, and to be overwhelmed that God would love you that much. That He would not require anything of you other than to believe by faith. And I want you to I want to invite you back to the wonderment of that love and call you into a life of righteousness as your response. Not because you have to, but because this morning you're being overwhelmed with a realization of what Jesus has done.
And so for both, I would invite you just simply to pray between you and God. This is a relationship. Say, Father, thank you that while I were, was still a sinner, that you died for me, Jesus. That before I chose you, you chose me. And that you have required nothing of me except simple faith. In faith, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin. By faith, I believe that you rose from the grave. In faith, I choose you to be the Lord and the leader of my life. I accept your free gift of salvation. Thank you for your forgiveness that you offered and secured for me on the cross. I proclaim that over my life. For some of you, this is the first time you've prayed a prayer like that. And I want to welcome you into the family of God. Regardless of what you've done, in advance of anything you do. For those of you who are already His, I want to invite you back to the wonderment of the cross. I want to invite you back to the release of all the things you've thought you've done well. To the realization that all of our good works are, are but rubbish before God. To let go of the pride and the arrogance and the hubris of, of your own righteousness. And simply stand before the cross as one who does not deserve it, but who's been given it freely. I want to invite you back to the wonderment and the awe of that. And out of that, in response and appreciation, I'm going to call you into righteousness. Not because you have to. Not because it makes you right. But because that is your proper response to Jesus' work on the cross. Father, I thank you that you love us. Thank you that nothing we could do could ever separate us from your love and nothing we could ever do could make us merit your love. You just love us. Thank you that in spite of what we've done in advance of what we'll do, you still just love us. Father, there are hearts coming back to you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would overwhelm us both with the simplicity of the good news of the mystery of the gospel and also overwhelm us with the wonderment that that is how much you do love us. And out of response for that, I pray that we would choose out of appreciation to live a righteous life. Father, I don't want anybody who can hear my voice to walk away from this moment without accessing what is available in you through faith. 
You know our hearts. There's no magic words we can say. Father, you know our hearts, and I pray that you would hear those hearts, that you would see those hearts that are coming back to you. That we would be so overwhelmed with your great love for us, that you would pursue us. Even when we ran away from you, that you would pursue us continually. Father, I pray we'd allow ourselves to be caught by you. Father, I pray in this place, those who can hear my voice, I pray that you would absolutely wreck our lives with the realization of your love. That you would absolutely destroy our lives with the reception of your grace. Your word says that your eyes range to and fro about the earth to to, to see those whose hearts are fully yours, that you might fully support them, Father. Not because of what we do. Not because of how we perform. In spite of what we do. Our hearts are yours. God, as we go into this Christmas season, we bless your name. Yours is the name above every name. Yours is a name before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Blessed be your name. You are the God who loves. You are the God who heals. You are our shepherd. You are our righteousness. You are our sanctification. You are our shelter. You are our refuge. Jesus, you are God with us. You are the way, the truth, and the life. We come to God through you. Holy Spirit, you are our counselor. You are our comforter. You are our guide. You are our helper. You are our teacher. You are our intercessor. Blessed be your name. We choose you today because you've chosen us. We love you. Help us to love you more. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Here's your assignment now. More people will come to church during the Christmas season than any other time of the year. Uh, And you have people in your life. We call it your huddle. Eight to 15 people that you have influence with in your life on a regular basis. Some of them already know Jesus. Some of them are already plugged into church. You celebrate Christmas with them and what it means, and you encourage them to stay plugged in and get in and serve and give to their church. But you got other people in your huddle that don't know Jesus yet. Invite them here with you. Don't make it hard on them. I mean, it's real simple. But you have eight to, you got people in your 8 to 15 that don't know Jesus that need to know him. And the only reason you're in their life and they're in yours is so you'll tell them. That's why God put them in your life and put you in theirs. And so you make it your concerted effort and daily prayer that they'll respond to your invitation to bring them to church in this Christmas season. Understand? You disciples, you understand? This is your charge. This is what it means to be a disciple. Don't neglect your duty. Not because you have to, but because you are so overwhelmingly amazed and thankful for what Christ has done for you. That's your motivation. I love you. And this next month's going to be fun going through the Bible, looking at 
the gifts of Christmas. Jeff Alley, that's it.